We've certainly been able to improve soil organic matter, which is carbon, um, you know, over a period of time with a system using cover cropping, um, compost, diverse rotation, and tillage. Um, you can build soil organic matter that way. I think you have to be pretty diligent on your cover cropping. And we were never really, you know, um, cereal tillers. Uh, we did, you know, we tilled what we needed to, but we never really pulverized the soil. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, elevating uh, soil organic matter one and a half to two percent over a period of time with that system. Um, you know, that's capturing a lot of carbon. We're not really necessarily wanting to sequester carbon in the, for our farm. We want to utilize the carbon. So we want to have carbon, more carbon in the soil and be able to use it as a bank account, but we want to utilize it. Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops that are grown in healthy soils and organic livestock that are raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from California farmer Phil Foster of Pinnacle Organics, who supplies the Bay Area with diversified vegetables. We toured Pinnacle Organics with Phil last year to learn more about his ongoing experiments attempting to reduce tillage in organic vegetable production. We had some melon harvest going on today. This is a little melon packing line here. Bill, what's your scale? About how many acres? We're just under 300. Uh -huh. So our home ranch here, we own 50 and we lease another 45. It's all contiguous. And we've been here since uh, 93, 94, and then added some neighboring properties that you know, came available over the years. Yeah. Um, the other ranch will go up to We've been on since 88, and we had organic production there in 89, and really moved that direction in 1990. That's a couple hundred acres. Yeah. Um, that ranch really has beautiful soil. The one limiting factor is water. So um, we're, you know, we're now getting to the point where we're cutting back on what we do more and more on that ranch just to conserve the water table. Yeah. And here we have pretty plentiful water, so. Those are drilled wells. They're all wells, yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably 60 people working on the farm right now, maybe a little bit more, th thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, 40 work year-round. We have year-round production. We're planting and harvesting every week of the year. And this is uh, Jose Luis and Lupita. Hi, guys. This is Dave Chapman. He's with uh, the Real Organic Project, and they do an extension of organic certification for better practices, kind of elevated standards for organic production. How much of, of what you do goes, you know, wholesale market and how much is direct sale like CSA or anything? No like CSAs. We supply to some CSAs, you but don't do a CSA ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably 25% of our sales are going to farmer's market. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe 
35% is direct to this group of stores. Um, we do work with Whole Foods Northern California in their distribution. So we send stuff direct to their distribution facility in the East Bay. Yeah. How has the market changed for you over, when it, what, what year did you start as organic? Uh, we had our first experiment in 89. Uh, I just had just switched to farming on our own a year or two before. We were growing uh, cannery tomatoes for local cannery, a pretty yeah. small, you know, with, at 20 acres one year, then we're up to 70. That wasn't going to be a, you know, very vi viable long term at that size. So yeah. we had five acres of, um, you know, in six or seven different vegetables. Um, in organic production, we marketed through Ocean Organic. They were a small company that supported, you know, a marketing agent for local growers in the area. So that kind of opened my eyes up to, um, you know, the economics of organic production and then also the soil building. Had, did you grow up in a farm family? No, no, but I had relatives that farmed in this area and I got a chance to you know, worked for them when I was relatively young. I was probably just college age. And I had a cousin who I was, became really close to, and he was really instrumental in, um, you know, giving me some opportunities and kind of piqued my interest. Yeah. And uh, so that's, you know, I decided at that point, that's what I wanted to be involved with. I worked for them for a couple of years after graduating from college. And I went to Bakersfield and, uh, worked on a corporate farm for a few years and then I extracted myself from them and came back and started started on my own. What did you study in college? Uh, yeah, crop uh, crop science. And, so you did? Yeah, animal yeah. science, crop science. You already kinda, knew. Well, at that point I knew what I wanted to do so I kind of got into an ag program at UC Davis. Yeah. I, I bounced around and I was in junior college. I was at UC Berkeley for a year. And then I um, figured agriculture was the way I wanted to go, so I went to, <laughs> went went to, to Davis. Went yeah. to Davis, yeah. So we're pretty diverse. We don't do anything on a very um, large scale of any particular crop, but we have a wide variety of crops we do, and that just kind of lends itself to the way we market. How many different crops do you think you grow? Um, you know, I always use the number 60 or 70 if you're talking about you know, four or five varieties of potatoes, several varieties of lettuce, five or six varieties of melons, a number of different peppers. It's kind of an easy number to throw out. I You have to sit out, but it's, you know, if you go by all the different types we have, we're probably up to that point. Yeah. So this um, isn't our lightest soil, but it's kind of our light, towards the end of our lightest soil, it's more of a, a loam or a, yeah. Sandy loam. We have one field that's down in the river bottom that's a little lighter yet. But the organic matter here probably runs um, two to two and a half percent. Yeah. And we've elevated that probably a, a percent plus in the time we've been here. The other farm location, we've probably added uh, one and a half to two percent. We've gone from two and a half to three and a half to four percent to you know, three and a half to almost 6% in our best soils over. Wow. Paul was saying he has this 
to us, the strange situation that is organic matter is higher in his tilled field than it is in his fence row. And he said that's because they irrigate the field and they don't irrigate the fence row. And of course, they're cover cropping. But I thought, well, that's pretty impressive to say we're doing better than the native soil. Well, maybe, yeah, I would say we have no-till in our orchard production. We've been kind of no-till for five or six years. And prior to that, we only tilled every other middle. And we, we were on kind of that program for a long time. But I don't know that we see uh, an extensive boost in organic matter in that system. I mean, it's good. You look at the soil, it's very vibrant. Yeah. But... Um, you know, we're, it's not, we, certainly it's getting irrigated, it's getting uh, some residue, we do put compost on. It's probably not getting extensively cover crops, as good a cover crops as we grow in our vegetable land, just it's, you know, it's not as practical to get them going. Yeah. Uh, we do try to get some seed in occasionally and get something, but it's never as robust a cover crop as our uh, regular fields, so. It seemed like we were able to make some pretty good advances, maybe from 95 to 2005 was probably our greatest jump in organic matter. And that was, um, you know, once we started producing our own uh, compost and also with, uh, you know, really focusing more and more on our cover cropping and cover cropping species. And then we kind of plateaued and we've been able to main that, maintain that plateau, plus or minus. I mean, it yeah. goes up and down. You want your organic matter to move a little bit. You want to know that you're utilizing it and cycling it. And so th that's, that was kind of the interest when the opportunity and the exposure to reduce till uh, kind of came up maybe three or four years ago. And we kind of engaged in this project. Um, you know, with Jeff Mitchell, Cindy Daly, and was we were able to kind of uh, cooperate with uh, Full Belly and Park Farm, and you know we we're all doing kind of our uh, kind of our own things on our own farms. But the goal was to uh, you know come up with ideas on uh, reducing tillage and see how practical. I thought it was going to have a much more dramatic effect. Yeah, and. Um, I think it might be more of a lot, it might be take a little more time to really see. Um, you know, we switch, you know, we've obviously dramatically changed our tillage practices. We don't disc, we don't invert the soil anymore. Um, for a couple of years, we did very little chiseling. We tried to really stay with shallow tillage, never a no till other than a few experiments. Uh, but I would say a pretty significant um, effort in reduced till. Yeah. And a lot of that will stick. We were going to use those practices. They're very practical. Um, especially when you're coming out of a crop and going to a cover crop, there's really no need to do a lot of tillage. If you have just a shallow area to plant your cover crop into and get it going, I mean, that's been a big improvement. And it's allowed us probably to improve our cover cropping 20% a year by that less messing around with tillage. You know, our own our mindset before was, you know, till after a crop you know, do the same preparation, but for a cover crop, you don't really, you don't, you don't need to be that, ex 
that uh, much work to get a cover crop in. You can do it with just very shallow um, tillage. So that has been a nice learning effect from uh, our experiences with reduced tillage. So if you took a, give me an example of a crop that you probably wouldn't bother to till after now. What you, you harvest? Well, onions, for example. Um, you know, onions, because you're undercutting cutting them, you're probably reducing, you know, whatever few weeds were in your on onions. You've uh, disturbed the soil enough. Uh, maybe you just need to do a, a, maybe a strip till. If, we're, if we have onions on 40-inch beds on that ranch, what we would have to probably cover crop is with a single line cover crop, which is very easy to do on onion beds. You, you run a strip tiller shallow and you can go in and plant right away without any disturbance of the beds. So this is radicchio. So we're just, we've come across the field where we had lettuce, we had cabbage, we had chard, radicchio, kind of small plantings, succession plantings. We're gonna finish up here. We've, um, moving out of a field with our three plantings of celery, and now we're moving into this field next, and then we jump to another field. Um, so this is kind of typical. For the most part, you see quite a bit of um, diversity across fields. The exception is this field is rotated. Uh, six acre field is rotated into melons. So this field is pretty much all melons and watermelons. And then we can rotate into another field and kind of stay on a four or five year rotation. Hopefully on our melons, we're on a five year or six year rotation on alleums. You have the most soil looking soil I've seen in California. The most soil looking? <laughs> I don't know. You know, because I got a, of? I don't know. I, it's that hard clay and it, it balls up and I put my hand in and... Uh, well, this, this soil is still has a long ways to go improving in my mind where um, we've made, I think some of the reduced till kind of broke, you know, got us going in a little bit more of a direction where we could get more cover crops with cover crops that are probably better to manage. If we weren't under so much pressure from the other farm location with lack of water, We've, have, we've had to shift some of the crops over here. Normally this time of year, we would start getting patches of cover, summer cover crop going, but we haven't been able to do that this year with uh, you know, moving some crops over this direction. Uh, we, are gonna, we are gonna put a cover crop in next week on about an acre in here, and it's where we're gonna plant our strawberries in the fall, so it's, we always put strawberries in after a cover crop, so we are gonna concentrate on getting that summer crop, cover crop going pretty quickly. Does, does your land mostly get a cover crop? How often? Um, I know it's different. No, yeah. historically it's been uh, every other year, uh -huh. but now we're probably, so that's maybe 50%. Now we're probably getting this ranch last year. We were 70% was cover cropped. We'll never, we may never get quite to a hundred, but that would be a goal. But 70% uh, was cover crop last year. The other ranch we did 60% and that was on a location with low water. You know, it's nice not to have ground sit in the summer. If you don't need it, it's nice to plant something and get something growing there. If you, if, 
when the years we have the water. And so the limiting factor for drilling four rows or six rows would be water. Well, you'd go to sprinklers at that point yeah. or multiple lines of drip tape. Too, um, too much water. So, I mean, th those are some of the places where we're kind of benefiting from a, a highly a highly reduced till or almost a no-till. Yeah. But everything else, we haven't really um, found anything practical in no-till just because of the way a, a vegetable and we're seeding or transplanting that, uh, learning how to deal with that residue and plant through is so new to us and it's a, you know, multi steps away from where we are. But if uh, we can really, really reduce our tillage with some uh, shallow tillage and plant pretty nice crops, I would say in general, um, our, we see a yield reduction in that case. Or if we're following a cover crop, we see a real, uh, somewhat of a yield reduction if we're doing a, a strip till or reduced till. Because cause the, the detritus of the cover crop's all sitting on the surface. Yeah, exactly. Explain to me, if you would, when the cover crop gets incorporated in the soil, it has benefit for the next crop much greater than if it's sitting on the surface. Did I get that right? That is true. I've, I, 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 yeah, that is, that's the way we've always done our cover crops. We've always incorporated them. And the idea we would incorporate them as quick as we could is fresh and green, and that would give us the most value. You know, now I think we probably let them maybe dry a little bit more if we're doing a more of a shallow tillage, then you can't have that real wet material it doesn't it's hard to handle it but if you're incorporating that cover crop shallow or deeper with the spader you get a lot of benefit for the next crop if you're doing uh, a strip till which is a you know a form of reduced tillage and just working a narrow band on on your bed top you are working that material in shallow, so you are getting some benefit of that, but then the other material is resting on top of the bed. You know, you're gonna get benefit from it at some point. You're gonna get benefit by maybe improved microbial life where the soil isn't disturbed, uh, where the soil is protected with the, with the residue on top. But for that next crop, at least short term, you know, however, whatever it takes to change your, your soil qualities, um, it's not going to be probably as productive as when you uh, till deeper. And, and could you explain in your mind why that is? Why is it that tilling it in is benefiting the next crop? You, you have all this nice residue that can be, uh, you know, decomposed by, you get a great big flush of uh, microbial life in the soil, breaking that material down, making it available for the next, next crop. So it's, it's, it's a biologically active soil going to work on that cover crop. And it's, you know, then it, it's not available immediately, but it's available for that crop season. Yeah. Yeah. Or some of it could be available pretty, pretty readily, but generally when we incorporate a cover crop, you're pre-irrigating, you have a period of time before you plant anyway, either two to four weeks. That's probably in the short range of things. And, um, then we don't have to add a lot of other fertility in that the cover crop is a fertility, the compost we put on, maybe just a little bit of supplemental feather meal. 
I don't quite understand the dynamics of what's going on when you leave that residue on the surface. Uh, we've done some trials where we will strip till. Uh, we planted different rates of uh, supplemental organic fertility and form of feather meal. Um, it's it all that it doesn't doesn't follow all the time that more application is better, but some level of application is good. Um, but if you're just doing a trial where you're doing um, uh, kind of a full till with the spader incorporating cover crop, as uh, and then looking at uh, maybe strip tilling, reduced till, and then planting in that strip. The yields will be lower, the crop growth is lower. Um, you can add extra other extra supplemental fertility and bring that up some, but it still doesn't quite equate where you incorporate the whole cover crop. So it's not just nitrogen, there's a lot of other nutrients that are released. You're not gonna make up all those nutrients by you know, coming up with supplemental fertility, because you can't. The soil is gonna take all that material and make you know, make a lot of different things available to the plants and you're not gonna be able to, to supplement that by adding things, so. Because you don't even fully understand. We don't, we don't, yeah. <laughs> what it is. Yeah. <laughs> the soil has its own wisdom there. Yeah. So, uh, so in your mind, if you had a, let's say that you weren't organic, let's say you were uh, chemical and you said, well, no-till sounds good. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill the, crop with Roundup or whatever, and then plant into it, in your mind, you would really need to be supplementing with You're fertilizer. You're going to be using co commercial fertilizer probably pretty heavily, uh, I would think. Yeah. Now, as you build your soil up, and that's going to be, that's the benefits probably of leaving all that nice residue. Eventually, it does, does work in the soil. You build the biology, hopefully, in the soil. You know, but if you're adding a lot of commercial fertilizer and you're doing pesticides or herbicides, I don't know what level they reduce the microbial life, but they can't be a, pos a positive effect on the microbial life. Yeah. Um, yeah. For so sure. I, I can't really put myself in the place of a conventional farmer now after 30 <laughs> years or plus, but uh, I, I, I do kind of understand your question. You have um, probably a few more tools you can make your results more predictable. Right now in, in our system of organic vegetable production, if we do some level of tillage, we can be more predictable on our crop results, our yields, growth, weed control. Um, but if, you know, at least in just a few years experience with reduced till, the more you go to a highly reduced till, almost to a no till, the predictability becomes harder. You, you're, you're, and maybe it's because we're experienced in a system of tillage and we're not that experienced in a system of uh, approaching no-till, but the few experiments I've done in no-till for the most part um, have been very interesting and stimulating, but they haven't been uh, close to the productivity of uh, of a tillage or um, a modest, a modest reduced tillage system. You know, the tillage is just a tool to, you know, get cover crop into the soil or prepare a seed bed. Um, 
Well, one of the things that, of course, everybody is considering now is what's the impact on carbon sequestration of any agricultural enterprise? What's the impact, you know, consequentially on, on climate change? So when you say the tillage can have the same or greater organic matter, obviously in conjunction with cover cropping. In conjunction with cover crop, composting, and a diverse rotation. Yes. I mean, those are kind of come some of the key things that our farm is, does. I think a lot of other farms that are interested in building soil organic matter and soil health. You know, the tillage uh, probably, I, I just, I, I would like to see in the next few years what uh, areas that we've done uh, reduced till if we start to see that next increase in soil organic matter. It could be that we're pushed up against, you know, the amounts that we can go in our system, you know, in an arid climate. Um, so, I mean, those are some of the things to, to learn in the next few years. See if we can get that upward trend in soil organic matter to kind of come away from the plateau and start to go up again. Yeah. But um, we've certainly been able to improve soil organic matter, which is carbon, um, you know, over a period of time with a system using cover cropping, um, compost, diverse rotation, and tillage. Um, you can build soil organic matter that way. I think you have to be pretty diligent on your cover cropping. And we were never really you know, um, cereal tillers. Uh, we did, you know, we tilled what we needed to, but we never really pulverized the soil. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, elevating, uh, soil organic matter one and a half to 2% over a period of time with that system. Um, you know, that's capturing a lot of carbon. We're not, really necessarily wanting to sequester carbon in the, for our farm, we want to utilize the carbon. So we want to have carbon, more carbon in the soil and be able to use it as a bank account, but we want to utilize it. We want to be utilizing it when we need to. And then our system allows us to replenish that or add to it with the way we're farming. So cycling is what's critical. I think that's what I would, I think that's how I've always viewed it. Um, now you want to make that, so if carbon is your bank account, you want to be adding to it, you want to be redrawing it, you want to draw from it when you need to, but you also over time, you want to make that slightly bigger over time if you can, so then you have more to draw from uh, when you need to. Yeah. So a 2% organic matter soil uh, is can certainly be very productive, but if you can get that to three or four percent, you've um, added more carbon to the soil, and that's a bigger carbon bank account that you can utilize. So I so there are two potentially different perspectives here, and one is how do I optimize the productivity of the land in terms of producing food that we can eat, and the other is. How do I optimize the productivity of the land in terms of sequestering carbon and trying to pull CO2 out of the air? Now, they, they might be the same thing, but they might be different. So, yeah, I think 
We adding improving soil organic matter, which is uh, improving carbon in the soil, is is really valuable and can lead to, you know, much better crop production, less reliance on inputs, uh, you know, probably better um, aggregate, soil aggregate stability, better water infiltration, all kinds of uh, benefits, plus a much much more so being able to. So to support a much more diverse microbial life in the soil, which um, I think has a real benefit to the soil and crops that you're growing. Um, we don't know yet about how new, you know, measurement of nutrition, nutrition of crops, but I mean, it, 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 sound, it's, it makes a lot of sense to me if you can have a healthier soil, much more diverse microbial life, higher soil organic matter, if you want to have a chance to have uh, more nutritious food, th that's going to take you in that direction. Now, until we can quantify that and learn more from it, it's, you know, we're kind of making some assumptions, but at some point we'll be able to validate that. The, David Montgomery and Amber Clay just put out a book called What Your Food Ate, and it is kind of a meta study of a lot of research into the correlation between kinds of farming and nutritional content of food. And it, it over and over, there's a demonstration that organically grown is more nutritionally dense. So it was nice to see that they did an awful lot of work. They had a thousand references on the thing. Yeah. And the, the, the trend over time is, is, is starting to validate that. Yeah, yeah. Now, a relatively new thing is to look at it from the opposite direction, and which is what's the impact of agriculture on climate? We, we, we know, every farmer knows that there's an impact on agriculture by climate, that climate is impacting agriculture. But, you know, a relatively new conversation is in what ways does the way we farm impact climate change? And... Uh, you know, and that's, that's, I think, a bit distinct from how does it impact water quality or air quality. That's all part of the conversation. But for me, it's a relatively recent thing to say, well, if you're running a tiller, does that increase the greenhouse effect? And, and obviously, if, if you do it in your field, it's not going to have much of an impact on the world. But if a, a million people do it, then it, it might have an impact, and in which case we have to look and go, well, how should we farm in order to have a positive impact because we're in deep shit. So, uh, you know, does it make a difference? And I think that's a big part of this conversation about tillage is, and I, I believe that there are scoundrels who are taking advantage of this conversation to say, you see, we told you, you should just be using herbicides and and that's the best thing you can do for climate and i doubt that but that's why i want to kind of figure out well what what's your experience you know well yeah i'm not a climate scientist um certainly uh less fuel use that you can come up with on a farm is uh, lowering your carbon footprint um, if you're cover cropping, you're letting, uh, you're capturing sunlight, you're uh, pulling carbon 
uh, the atmosphere, getting it back into the soil, keeping your fields uh, growing green as much as you can throughout the year. Um, you know, hopefully those do mitigate some of the things. I mean, if we've shown that we've added to soil organic matter over a period of time and then able to maintain elevated levels, it shows that we're able to recapture carbon, cycle it, utilize it, um, and sequestering a portion of it, maybe for a period of time. But at some point, hopefully that comes available to use again. There are always, you know, in an organic system or any system, there should be stable carbon that takes a while to get reused. But um, there's a lot of labile carbon that's used short term. Uh, when you till, you're certainly stimulating the breakdown of um, organic uh, matter, undecomposed organic matter, whether you're incorporating it. Uh, some of that is, you know, microbes, they are like humans, they respire CO2. So that is all part of the cycle. Uh, hopefully, then the plants can recapture that. And But the more green plants that you have growing for a longer period of time, your potential for uh, grabbing more carbon out of the atmosphere is much greater. Now, what the net effect is, um, are you doing some negative things on a farm? Are you doing more positive things? I think organic agriculture tends to be doing much more positive. If they're using the real tools and what organic means with soil building, rotation, cover cropping, compost use, those are all tenets of organic farming. And that, I believe that organic farming is set up in a position to, you know, have some effect on, on the climate in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was, um, I went with my wife to visit her family last week on the East Coast, and it is pretty amazing how you <laughs> land on the East Coast and how green and lush it is in the summer. And then you you transition back here and you look at West Coast or California, I mean, it's pretty dry every place you look. Yeah, yeah, for let's, better and for worse. Let's see, you wanna make a little loop? Sure, sure. <laughs> and then we should head up to the other Good. ranch too. Good. We got yeah. some different things to look at up there. <laughs> I like your guy here. <laughs> sidekick well um so your main crop is uh pulled tomatoes or tomatoes in um plastic I, tunnels i'm in a glass greenhouse okay so that's my only crop mm -hmm. is tomatoes and they're trellised about 11 feet high yeah and we have hydraulic carts that run along on tracks to lower them and prune them and it's a very it's about as fussy as it gets, um, but we we harvest a lot of tomatoes yeah. off of two and a half acres. Yeah, and that's really an extended season then. Year round. Year round. Nice. And uh, it's a very <laughs> it's just strange, I guess you know is the way to say it, but. Uh, one thing led to another, and I found I liked growing tomatoes in fussy conditions and having to dial it in and get it right. And where's your farm located? Vermont. What what part of or? Uh, it's about halfway up the state on the Connecticut River on the east side. Uh huh. 
and uh, I don't know if you know Vermont at all. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, so we're we're about 20 miles north of White River Junction, 10 miles north of Dartmouth College mm -hmm. in New Hampshire. Very beautiful. And I used to be a, a typical, very small, very mixed farm with a roadside stand and farmer's market, but that was a long time ago. When I got kids, we evolved into being more specialized so that I could see the kids and still run the farm. Yeah. And then you can market uh, local, but then all up and down the East Coast? Not all up and down, but not that much local. I mean, most of our crop goes to the Boston, greater Boston area. Uh -huh. We have one chain that we deal with it. We deliver to Pennsylvania and it goes from there down to North Carolina and up to upper state New York. But mostly it goes, well, to Boston and New York, I forgot. We now have a pretty big customer that does deliveries to people's apartments in New York City. Very nice. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's quite a thing. Well, do you couple with some other farmers to have more uh, the, the more mix of products, or this is just straight tomatoes going to? It's us. We we have one distributor we work with, and she gets them to New York City, to this big mixing place in the Bronx. It's quite a quite a thing. You go to their website, and they've got tracks running all over as they make up people's boxes. It's amazing, but. Um, they just got bought by Ahold, which is a Dutch multinational. And in the last, I don't know, six years, Ahold has bought Giant and Stop and Shop and Hannaford Brothers wow. and Fresh Direct. So they're, they're talk about the vertical integration. <laughs> got a company in Holland that owns a good percentage of the Northeast supermarkets. And I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like that consolidation. It, it doesn't serve the farmers, and it, I don't think it serves the eaters yeah. either. Yeah. But it serves their stockholders. So you were last night at the Real Organic uh, gathering, and you're certified by Real Organic Project. Can I ask, do you see this as something that might be significant in helping to change or bring bring to light certain conversations that ought to be had? Well, what, what I like is the emphasis on what organic should be. Um, you know, and, and that, if you, if you have carrots or standards or, um, you know, you know, the, the tenets of organic are there and it seems like you can be certified organic and you can do, you can farm a different way. You're not really utilizing the tenets, maybe the total tenets of organic farming, but um, so the Real Organic Project, it seems like it's bringing those to light. It's putting refocus on those. Um, how much interest it gets in the short term, it's hard to say. I mean, customers are, you know, they seem to be interested in what just the word organic, um, you know, local seems to be a big component of what uh, customers in our area are interested in. 
and as far as um, them understanding the importance of really moving and elevating organic, I'm not quite sure, but I think that's what the Real Organic Project um, can start to do. Yeah. And I don't know if that really focuses, you know, no. I'm, yeah. No, that's helpful. You know, it's, it's. To, at this point, Dave, it's nice to be a part of it. It's nice because I think it's a positive and it's taking things in the right direction. Um, but our farm's gonna operate the way it operates anyway. Um, and but to 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 be along with like-minded people, and see if uh, you know see how this moves forward, you know I broached the subject with one of our uh, closest store customers. You know what what things are you interested in? Are you you know do you um, like the real organic project? I explained a little bit about that. Are you the buzzword regenerative, uh, social welfare? What, what um, you know, what are the things you're hearing from your customers? And it still seems like, you know, local is important. Uh, organic is, is kind of the baseline for a lot of the customers. Um, what happens in the next few years, we'll just, we'll, we'll see what develops. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, one of the things that I felt was important about the Real Organic Project is to keep organic alive mm -hmm. and not some you know, like natural and, <laughs> and sustainable and just a, a word that's dead sitting on the shelf and doesn't mean anything. Well, organic has a lot of meaning, but it's almost stayed stagnant for a number of years. I thought my impression was, you know, when it when it uh, was, you know, kind of moved into regulations that, you know, there was going to be an emphasis on, you know, improvement and making standards you know, better. And in some cases, there have been a few minor improvements, but in general, it's kind of stayed at a floor. And, um, you know, the incentive for improving maybe isn't there for people who need that little extra nudge to um, to move them forward. But in, in, you know, my opinion, all of the different things that we've done over the years, soil building wise, diversity, the way we market, all of those have been benefit to the farm. We've gotten way more benefit out of doing those practices. And we probably, you know, we've been able to stay in business because of that. Now, moving forward, you're, nothing's guaranteed. We'll, we'll just have to see what happens. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe and share the link with your friends. Please take the time today to leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening to so that others can find us. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org and by following our YouTube channel. Please join us next time when we'll hear more from today's guest, real organic farmer Phil Foster of Pinnacle Organics. Phil is part of a group of California row farmers experimenting with reduced tillage and vegetable production and was among the 50 thought leaders that we interviewed to discuss the ongoing co-opting of regenerative and climate smart farming in our recent online symposia. You can still find tickets to the recordings at realorganicsymposium.org. See you next time.